Okay, let's turn to Romans 1 and 16 again. Kathy, I didn't recognize you in here. <laughs> Romans 1 and Romans 16. Now, remember, keep these toys and children's clothing of all sizes new. Keep it coming until December 15th, and that time we'll say halt, but not until then. So thank you for your generosity so far. It's fantastic. And it's going to make a lot of kids very much happier than they normally would have been, perhaps. So, another announcement. There will be, incidentally, there's no guns, knives, grenades, bazookas, none of that. No, no toys. If it was up to me, every kid would get a Red Rider BB gun. But that's, I'm a Neander, Neanderthal. Another important announcement. There will be a Sunday School Volunteer Christmas Luncheon. Paul, I call that a party, but, you know. On Sunday, December 10th, for all Sunday school volunteers. Now, don't call Paul. Better call Paul's all over. We're done with that. We're in Romans now. So, for this is for all Sunday school volunteers and their families. And all volunteers that plan on attending the luncheon, please sign up at the information table over here, right out here as soon as possible. Okay? Romans 1 and 16. We're continuing, at least for now, at least for the time being, and I don't know how much longer we will carry this strategy out, but a modified, at least, pincer movement in which two flanks attack a center. It's a pincer movement. It's been very effective against the Romans all the way up into First and Second World Wars, uh, the pincer movement. And I'm using this strategy in Romans. We're coming at Romans so far. I don't think I'll continue this too long unless it keeps on opening up. Romans 1 and Romans 16. We've had times when I've studied... For example, Galatians, we've gone from the last verse back to the front. We've gone from front to back. This time we're going from front and back to center, at least so far. It's a good way to begin anyways. I don't know how long this will continue, but this is our pincer strategy. Look it up online. It'll tell you all about what pincer means and the historical part of it. Let's take a couple moments silent preparation. For the most important thing that the family of God does in the household of God, and that's to be receptive to the word of truth. So silent preparation. Father, as we're on our way in Romans, I ask for your continual guidance that we will strike the chords that you want struck so that this symphony will be an honor and a glory to you as we study Romans together. And I pray that there will be a symphonic concert of praise from the hearts of all of us together. For we have been intensely aware that how good and how pleasant it is for the brethren to dwell together in unity 
because it's there that God commands the experience of life. And we're grateful for that, Father. So we commit ourselves and this study to you tonight. We ask that you'll grant us the grace to make the most of a divine opportunity. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. I want to call tonight's message at least loosely greetings front and back. And we'll start with Romans 1. In Romans 1, 5, after Paul writes, through whom we received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that is faith. It's very important that we understand that faith is brought about. It is not some kind of existential decision that the believer makes. It's a faith is a gift of God, is brought about by the Message, the message about Christ evokes or elicits the faith. Romans ten seventeen famously makes that very clear, that faith comes by akoe. This isn't just hearing. It's not the act of hearing, but it's the message. Faith comes by the message, and by the message we mean, Paul says, the message about Christ. So after saying that Paul received grace and apostleship to bring about the obedience that is faith by all the nations for the sake of his name, he goes on to greet the sanctified ones in Rome. Now these greetings, I think, can be interpreted by something that we say sometimes thoughtlessly, but sometimes we really mean it when we say, give my love to so-and-so, if you go see them, give my love to them. These greetings are Paul's way of saying, give my love to, and he names 25 names in Romans 16. Very atypical of Paul, but very important, as we're going to see, to the entire epistle. So after verse 5, Paul goes on to greet the sanctified ones in Rome. Those who have been constituted a kingdom of priests, it doesn't say that, but this certainly agrees, that word saints, certainly agrees with Revelation 1, 5, and 6, that the saints are constituted as a kingdom of priests in that city of Rome. So in verse 6, my translation says, among whom, that is all the nations, among whom you are also the called of Jesus Christ called here means effectually summoned that means that in their case God effected repentance and faith and you therefore effectually summoned to belong to Jesus Christ that's a slightly extended translation but that captures the sense you've been called to belong to Jesus Christ in Romans 1 7 then after an atypical, we might say, breach, a breaking of epistolary etiquette, if you read Paul's other epistles, he usually has a greeting very early on. This time he allows it to wait until verse 7. So after a kind of atypical breach of epistolary etiquette, Paul finally gives his greeting, and it's in Romans 1-7. To all those who are in Rome... Loved, and loved we're going to find, especially in Romans, but also in Genesis and throughout the Old Testament, loved is a synonym for elected. 
And so election is God's choice, not man's choice. And election, as we know, is a very inclusive, not exclusive function. We're going to learn that much more as we pass through Romans 9 through 11 again during the course of Romans. So to all those who are in Rome, loved and as such elected by God, called saints, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now by continuing the pincer movement that we have begun in our strategy of teaching Romans, at least in the beginning few messages, this is the sixth of Romans, messages, we're able to get a kind of a view of the situation in life. The Germans call that Sitzim Leben, and you see that a lot in the theologians that are German theologians. It's Sitz im Leben, situation in life. So we get a kind of, because of the pincer movement, we have a kind of a window of the situation in life of the saints in Rome. And this epistle was most likely written, it was, I think, the last of Paul's church epistles. And I believe that Ephesians was the first, which is kind of unusual. But this was written in the spring of 52 A.D. And so we get an idea of what the Sitzim Leben was there, the situation in life of the saints in Rome, that is, of those who belong to Jesus Christ there. In Romans 16, going to the other side, the other flank, and pressing to the center, Paul mentions 25 saints by name. He mentions one or two others by description but not name. On the one hand, he gives the names of people who were current co-laborers with him and are around where he is. He's probably writing from Corinth. He's introducing a very key personage in the New Testament named Phoebe. And she is from a church from the port city of Corinth called Kencria. And she's the one that delivers the letter of Paul. And she's the first one he mentions. So he's speaking, first of all, on the one hand, names of people who were current co-laborers with him. And some who were known to him who were currently in Rome. The most famous of them, Prisca and Aquila. And he mentions Prisca first, otherwise known as Priscilla. As one commentator says, she seems to have had a far more energetic Christianity than her husband. And she was probably more knowledgeable of the mystery of the apocalyptic mystery of Jesus Christ. She filled in Apollos with it, as we know from Acts. But Acts is only going to be our secondary source. We're really hunkering down in a lean, hopefully not too mean, commentary of Romans, bringing in some other of Paul's epistles. So... He begins by introducing Phoebe, who carried this letter to Rome. And he calls upon the hospitality of the saints there in Rome toward her. Not only because that would be appropriate action by those who are called saints, that hospitality, but also in light of the fact that Phoebe, 
has been an agent or a servant, says the scripture. Paul uses the word diakonon, where we get the word deacon, although I don't believe this has too much of an official capacity. In fact, it's greater than an official capacity. She is called a diakonon, or I would translate that as an agent or a servant of the church in Cancraia. That's You can read that in Romans 16, 2. We're going to get there in a moment, 16, 1 and 2. The, word, the same word diakonon is used of Jesus Christ in Romans 15, 8. It says, Jesus Christ was a diakonon, servant or agent to the circumcision. Now, Paul is kind of diplomatically correcting some of the Gentile bias in Rome. And that's one of the major things he hits on a practical, concrete level. The group biases among Christians that prevent unity. And if unity is prevented, then God does not command the experience of the life of the coming age. So there's the, the issues here are extremely critical. And they're the kind of things you feel as a pastor, as a shepherd teacher. So in Romans 16, calling Phoebe a diaconon, she's not only an agent of another church, but also an agent of benevolence and beneficence. Lonergan made quite an issue out of one of the hallmarks of Christian maturity is that the Christian is taken by God and made an agent of benevolence toward others. That is someone who benefits others in many different ways, who serves others in a very important way. And therefore, she was not only an agent of a church in Kenkriya and held a prominent position there, but she was also an agent of benevolence and beneficence to many people, Paul said, to many people, And then he said, including myself, Paul. And this kind of picks up God's goodness. God's goodness is to many people, to all, but it's also to each individual, not to Paul only, but to us. God has been very good to all, but he's also been very good to me, we could say. And this isn't only what he's done for us, in the past, but what he we know he will do and expect he will do in the future in the glorious restoration of all things. And so, Paul, the apostle to the nations, received of her benevolence. Some people even say that she was a patron of his, but that's not exactly what's being said here, so we can't. I'm going to try to do a lot less guessing and speculation and just get to the things that we know, or we can at least deal with things that have a high degree of probability. So calling a Phoebe a diaconon, servant or agent, after calling Christ a servant of the circumcision in 15.8, calls attention to Phoebe's being in Christ, describing her as an agent of benevolence, and beneficence to many in general and to Paul in particular aligns her with the action of God in Christ, which is benevolent and beneficent to all universally and to individuals in particular. When a saint, when any of you 
on any of us becomes an agent of beneficence and benevolence. And that's the fruit of the Spirit called goodness. When you become an agent or a consistent dispenser of, by the grace of God, benevolence to many, or even to one particular person. I think of people who serve Christ by caring for an aging parent. That is a service to Christ. And I think of people who may have extraordinary benevolence to someone who has been discarded by others or has benevolence to many. And when a saint becomes an agent of beneficence to many or even to one in particular in a meaningful way, then you can be pretty sure that that saint has attained a level of maturity in Christ. So now let's entertain our pincer movement from the right flank, Romans 16. I introduce to you Phoebe, our sister, who is an agent of the church in Kenkria. That's C-A-E-N-C-H-R-E-A-E, but it's pronounced Kenkria, accent in the second syllable, which is the port of Corinth. So that you would welcome her in the Lord in a manner that is worthy of the saints. And please note that because it's extremely important in the inclusio. The saints in Romans 1.7. The saints in Romans 16.1. And that you stand by to assist her in whatever things she may need from you. For she has been the benefactor. Again, I would say that using Lonergan's language, an agent of beneficence and benevolence to many and to me also. Now we begin to get a kind of vivid historical present view of the local situation of the saints in Rome. We know, first of all, they meet in house churches, churches in the homes of certain believers. Our first hint about this is 16.2. Greet. Let's call it give my love to. I think one translation actually does that, but I think I'd stick with that. I like it. Give my love to. It's appropriate here because greetings in Christ are always expressions of love to one another. So let's call it give my love to Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus. And a very interesting thing he says here, who laid down their neck, who laid down their neck to save my life. Now, usually we say someone risked their life or laid down their life. What does it mean here? in, in fact, though, here it says two people, one neck. It's a married couple, Prisca and Aquila. One neck, two people to save my life. Paul says, not only do I thank them, but so do all the Gentile churches for reasons that are very apparent in Philippians 1.24, for example. In 5a, that's the first part of the verse in verse 5, greet also, or give my love also, to the church that meets in their home. Now we know Down the road, we're going to read, greet the household of so-and-so, give my love to the household of so-and-so. That household may be 
more than just the family. It could probably refer to the church that's in their home. So there was probably several churches in Rome. Because Paul doesn't write to the church in Rome or to the church of Christ in Rome. He writes to the saints in Rome. And maybe, again, I'm only going to say maybe on this because I don't want to be sure of what the scripture isn't saying for sure. Maybe that indicates a kind of disunity because we do know from Romans 14 and 15 that there was a group that called themselves the strong. And the strong called another group the weak in faith. That's not Paul's name for them. That was their name for certain Jewish Christians who held on to a few of the Torah scruples, maybe kept a kosher table and did some other things, and the Gentile Christians were biased and therefore prejudiced against them. And that wouldn't have, got, that wouldn't have flown in Aquila and Priscilla's church because they were very mature believers. We know from other passages in 1 Corinthians, we know also from the book of Acts. Now, they laid their neck down to save Paul's life. The laying down of one's neck was a metaphor or maybe even an historical occasion of exposing one's neck to the executioner's axe. That this would have been the means of execution that they risked implies that Aquila and Priscilla were, like Paul, both Roman citizens and Jews. We know they were Jews. We know they were friends of Paul. We know they were fellow artisans and that they worked in construction of homes, really, or tent makers, both Roman citizens and Jews, because the means of execution of criminals and rebels in Rome, or at least those perceived to be, who were citizens of Rome, was the relatively humane death by beheading. You say, that's humane? It is compared to crucifixion. Crucifixion was reserved for slaves and non-citizens, and Christ made himself a slave, and he underwent the death by crucifixion, which is no way humane. So... Whether this is metaphorical for them laying down their lives or risking their lives for Paul, or whether it literally means they risked execution by a Roman executioner for Paul, it's hard to tell. So what the precise situation of the risking of their lives is, Paul does not say. Paul doesn't say, I won't say. A lot of guessing goes on in commentaries. And sometimes it affects us negatively. So I'm not going to do any guessing unless I have something to build a basis on and say, here's a high probability that this is what the situation was. And I'll leave it up to you. We're going to end with one of those tonight. The point is that Paul makes here that like Phoebe, whom he sends to Rome with Romans the epistle, Prisca and Aquila, who are in Rome, are aligned with Christ not only in terms of what we would call position in union with Christ, but in concrete terms of the action of love, the demonstration of being in Christ, being the love of God poured out in their hearts. In this we have come to know love, says John, who has great affinity 
with Paul in 1 John 3.16. John the Elder says, In this we have come to know love. Jesus Christ laid his life down for us. We ought also to lay our lives down for our siblings. That's 1 John 3.16. Not as famous as John 3.16, but pretty meaningful. This couple risked their lives for Paul, or their life for Paul. Two people, one life. A fact for which he is grateful. And he says all the churches of the Gentiles are also grateful. In other words, here's some Gentile Christians that are grateful for some Jewish Christians' lives laid down. What's Paul doing? Diplomatically, Paul knows how to write a letter. If you don't believe it, read Philemon. He knows how to diplomatically put things. Here's two Jewish Christians who saved my life by risking their own lives. And the Gentile Christian churches are very grateful for that. Gentile Christians, very grateful for what Jewish Christians did. These Jewish Christians are obviously not weak in the faith, especially if the faith works by love. See what he's doing diplomatically here. And I don't know how far I'm into the head or the mind or the heart of Paul, but it sure is an expedition worth taking. Philippians 1.24, when Paul had that dilemma, whether to be remain in this body or to go and to be with Christ, which is infinitely better to me, he said, and yet I know I have to stay here in this body for your sake. He was speaking to the church at Philippi. So the Gentile churches were glad that Aquila and Priscilla laid their lives down to save Paul's life or risked their lives to save Paul's life because they still needed him around in the body. Philippians 1.24. They still needed him to stay in the body. Paul said, I think I'd rather stay in the body because you guys still need me. You still need me in the body. You still need me face to face. So if I were to choose, I think I'd choose to stay a little longer. In any case, a church met in the house of Prisca and Aquila in Rome. So we may safely deduce and not speculate that there was at least one house church in Rome in the spring of A.D. 52, at the time of the writing of the epistle to the Romans. Continuing in Romans 16, 5b, he says, Greet my beloved, give my love to my dear friend, Epinatus, who is the first fruits in Christ from the province of Asia. That's, of course, Asia Minor, Western Turkey, Southwestern Turkey. And here's where you get into jams sometimes, but I, I kind of smooth these over. Some manuscripts of the Greek text have Achaia, which isn't Asia, which is Achaia is the southern region of Greece as distinguished from Macedonia, which is the northern part of Greece. It's more likely, though, that Asia is what he's talking about. The first fruits, we could even say maybe the first convert, the first one to have faith elicited in him, first fruits indicating a far greater harvest to come in Asia. But his name is Epinatus, and Paul finds him beloved. 
Paul had already spoken of the first fruits in Romans 11:16 as a first indication of a far greater quantitative harvest. Indeed, by this time, converts in the province of Asia and in Achaia, southern Greece, as well as southwestern Turkey, were multiplying. Romans 16.6, greet, give my love to Maria, one translation says, Miriam, another translation says, and I tend, tend to go that way, Miriam who is a Jewish Christian. That's a Jewish name. That's the name of Moses' sister, Miriam. Is he talking about another Jewish Christian? And then he says, who has worked very hard for you. She's labored in the Lord for you, the labor of love, which God does not forget, nor does his apostle forget it. Some have Miriam, then, a Jewish name. The important thing, again, here, and that's what we want to stay lean on the commentary, get the importance, the most important, salient thing, is that she has served the saints with a labor of love. And as Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not unjust to forget your labor of love, which you have, by which you have ministered to the saints. Whatever her labor was, she worked very hard. For them. So Paul's saying, here's a Jewish Christian who worked very hard for you Gentile Christians. So she can't be weak in faith because she's exercised the labor of love. And faith, true faith, works by love. It's all, see, diplomatic. It's subtle, but it's diplomatic and it's done in love, which we should do everything in. First Thessalonians 1 Thessalonians 1.3 also talks about a labor of love. Now, there seems to be a balanced mix of Jewish and Gentile Christians in this cascade of loving greetings. And so, I think, especially given the rest of Romans, we can surmise safely, without speculating, that Paul, in commending both Jewish and Gentile Christians, is making a case for unity among the saints in Rome. And indeed, among the saints everywhere. If you didn't like somebody, and you really had kind of an animus toward them, and you didn't like to be around them, and then you found someone else came around and said, you know, they've been praying for you and your children every day for 15 years. You'd be a little less quick to slander them, to think evil of them, to avoid them. And that's what Paul's saying. Mary, Miriam... Maybe you don't think much of her. She's worked very hard for you. And she apparently behind the scenes, because Paul has to say it, she's not going to say, I work very hard for you. That's this generation. You know what I've done for you? Paul had to let, as the scripture says, let another man praise you and don't praise yourself. Let somebody else say you're working hard. So then, That's why I like the Beatles song, She Loves You. That's a simple song. A guy is dejected because he thinks this girl that he loves doesn't love him anymore. And so either John, Paul, George, or Ringo goes up to him one day and says, Hey, I saw her yesterday. I want you to know something. She loves you. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You see, it's a simple song, but it's like it's an edifying song. She loves you. You know that can't be bad. 
And so maybe what you ought to do is apologize to her for being a jerk, etc. You see, that's kind of like the way that that's why the Beatles used to be such a great. I used to love to listen to them when I was 13 or 14 because I had like a lot of comfort. I didn't read the Bible back then, so I got comforted by the Beatles. Try to find a comforting song today in the popular song genre. It's hard to find. It's hard to find something simple and something like that. So, if there's a group bias nursed by certain Gentile Christians in Rome, by which Jewish Christians are considered outsiders or weak in faith, Paul is gently reminding them here of the love demonstrated by specifically Jewish Christians so far. Love which indicates anything but weakness how can you call someone weak in faith if they labor in love because faith in Galatians 5 6 works by love that's my reasoning on top of everything here so we may surmise that Paul in commending both Jewish and Gentile Christians is making a case of unity among the saints in Rome and among the saints everywhere The last three verses in Romans indicates that Paul wants this letter to be overheard. And that means not only in other places, but in other times. And that includes our time in this place. Unity. So Paul knows by the revelation of the mystery, he knows and he's taught elsewhere. That by the revelation of the mystery, there is no Jew versus Greek in Christ. Neither is there male versus female. And this is a fact that perhaps diplomatically was alluded to by the apostle by mentioning Prisca before Aquila. Now, well, you're supposed to mention the husband first, then the wife in any proper introduction. Why? Paul mentions Prisca. No gender bias with Paul, even though he's been accused by various people, including Hannibal Lecter in the movies, of being a hater of women. And misrepresentations of certain passages in 1 Timothy, for example, where it looks like he's not permitting women to teach, and he's not not permitting women to teach. Or in 1 Corinthians 14, where it pass a kind of Quick reading, looks like he's telling women to shut up in church, but he's only telling them to be silent in church because in Corinth, some of the women weren't. So if some of the women aren't silent during the teaching of the word and the preacher says, please be silent, and if you have questions, ask your husband at home, what's wrong with that? Is that gender bias? Does Paul hate women? I don't think so. But there's a hypersensitivity in the land today that is, Wow. It's like patting people on the back when they have a severe sunburn. Better not even pat them on the back. So, there's not male or female, or male versus female. And also, Paul not only diplomatically alludes to this by mentioning Prisca before Aquila, but he also does so in commending Phoebe. As a servant of the church, just as Christ was a servant of the 
circumcision, the Jews. Christ was a servant of the Jews. The Christ that you worship came to seek the lost sheep of Israel. So why is it that you have this kind of bias in which you exclude Jewish people, the people that Jesus came to be a servant of? You see, that's, I'm taking it a little more harshly, but you can see it's all in there with Paul. There's a ploy for unity. There's a move for unity. Not only that, but he commends Miriam's hard work for the saints in Rome, not least for the Gentile saints there. I see people in this room tonight that have labored more than you can imagine for you. They've labored behind the scenes. They've labored where, only few, labored where only a few people see them. They've labored in service. They've labored in teaching. They've labored in administration. They've labored in governments. They've labored in serving you. They've labored in intercession. They've labored in prayer. They've worked for you in that labor of love. But I won't mention a lot of names tonight because I know you cherish your anonymity, don't you, just like I do. No, I... I could probably mention at least 25, but then I'd leave out three and they'd all get mad at me. This taught me something today. Everything we say and write and think and do to one another in Christ can be with a view to edify and never to tear down. In fact, Paul specifically states that the authority he received as an apostle was not to tear down, but to build up. When I first came to Pittsburgh, I was under another affiliation, and I came on a team, and some of the young men were so urgent to say to me, I need the title pastor, and I didn't even want that title. I need to be called pastor. I'm thinking, why? Some of them didn't even have the gift to be pastor. They just wanted authority to lord it over people or to be respected or have some prestige about people. That makes me extremely sick. And I'll cherish their anonymity as well. But Paul had authority as an apostle. And the authority that he received, he specifically says, is not to tear down. That's what he did as Saul of Tarsus under Adamic ontology, under the power of sin. He tore down the church of God. The authority I've received, Paul said, is not to tear down, but to build up. That's all the time. Even if he reprimands, it's to build up. Even if he corrects and rebukes and reproves, it's to build up. Just as even when God judges, it's to save. He says this in 2 Corinthians 10.8 and 13.10. And 2 Corinthians as well as 1 Corinthians were written pretty close to the time when Romans was written, but before Romans was written, most likely. The one who did the homework for that is Douglas Campbell in the book called Framing Paul. I recommend you read it if you want to know the order of the events, the order of the epistles, the times in which they were written makes a pretty excellent case. But 
for us, everything we say should be to upbuilding, to minister grace to the hearers. What we say and write, especially what we speak, should never include what Paul called rotten speech, gossip, slander, vituperation, bitter railings on each other. It should not reflect the several biases that Paul confronts and corrects in Romans the epistle. So Paul, even in these greetings, shows himself a wise master builder, as he calls himself also in 1 Corinthians 3, a master builder of the church of God in Christ. Paul, who once under the control of sin, sought to tear down the same community of believers, the church of God. I persecuted the church of God, he says. In Philippians 3, 6. So greetings to and from saints come at us from both ends of the epistle, hence the pincer movement. Mutual greetings of grace and peace serves to bracket the epistle with unity. Where brethren reside together in unity, God commands a blessing. What's the blessing? Life. Eternal life or the experience of life of the coming age which has come in Christ. That's Psalm 133. And notable is the correlation with Romans 16.26 with Psalm 133. By the command of the eternal God, Paul said. The command of the eternal God that the mystery, the revelation of the mystery be unfolded, unveiled and disclosed is by the command of God. And that command in Romans 16, 26 is the same as the command of Psalm 133.3. It's a command of life. But in Romans, it's a command from God of life to all. For by one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. But by one man's obedience, the faithful obedience of Jesus Christ all humanity receives justifying or rectifying life. Life that sets right the problem of sin and death. Rectification that sets right the problem of sin, the power of sin. Life that sets right the problem of death and the power of death. The command of the eternal God in Romans 16:26 is also a command of life forevermore for the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord Romans 6:23 So in Romans the epistle and here's a very significant principle in Romans the epistle Paul, the apostle, thinks and writes globally to effect change locally. He thinks and proclaims a message that has a universal horizon. He speaks of a global redemption. He speaks of a universal horizon that arises from the cross, the event of the crucified and risen Christ. He speaks of a universal horizon in order to correct local 
problems in a church. And this is what he does in Romans. It's a very phenomenal strategy. There are many ways to interpret Romans. And I've chosen one that I think presents a circle that is a little bit outside or beyond the circle of other scholars. I believe that Romans is not primarily a correction of the biases of certain groups in Rome, although that's a subsidiary purpose of Romans. I don't believe that Paul's whole salient purpose is to rebuke the gospel of a false teacher, although I think that is a subsidiary or ancillary or secondary problem that he addresses and solves in Romans. I think what Romans is is more to be found in Romans 16, 25, and 26, the proclamation of Jesus Christ according to the apocalypse of a revealed secret, kept silent in God for ages gone by, but now revealed in the holy writings of the prophets. And that is the mystery of God's great intention to summarize, to recapitulate, to transform and liberate all creation in Christ Jesus. From that universal perspective, Paul addresses and solves several local problems. The local problems of churches in America and throughout the world today will only be solved in the light of the vision of a universal horizon of redemption. So significant, yeah, way beyond what we imagined is the Romans epistle. So in other words, Paul writes universally to address the particularity of the situation in Rome. Now we'll close with this in Romans 16, 7. Give my love or greet Andronicus and Junia. It's another, this is a tough one. Junia is, has an S on it, so generally it's a masculine name. Junia is a feminine name. Junius as a masculine name, is found very, very rarely in Greek literature. Junia, as a female name, is found probably three times as much, but that, not much either. So, again, I'm not going to speculate, but it's possible. And the scales tip a little this way. Let me say it this way. The scales tip a little that we have another married couple here, Andronicus and Junia. And Paul does it again later. He'll talk about another married couple. It's possible that Andronicus and Junia are another married couple. Now you say that's speculation. Maybe, but it's not empty speculation because I'm going to take it somewhere tonight to show you what it is to be an apostle. Which will interpret Romans 1 1. Junias, with an S, as it appears in most Greek texts, is a masculine name, and Junia is feminine. It's kind of like June. There's an ongoing debate about this verse regarding two things. One, the question is Junias a man or a woman? Secondly, are they together outstanding among the apostles? Or are they considered to be outstanding by the apostles of which they're not a part? So let me read this verse. Give my love to Andronicus and Junia, 
my fellow, fellow countrymen and fellow prisoners. I asked the question, and I won't speculate, were they even cellmates of Paul at one time? Fellow prisoners. Paul calls himself a prisoner as he calls himself a slave as he calls himself an apostle of Jesus Christ. They are fellow prisoners. Notice what else he says. My fellow countrymen. Jewish Christians again. Curb your enthusiasm, you Gentile Christians. And fellow prisoners who are outstanding among the apostles. I tend that way. probably have to stand there. N is the word among or within the apostles. can also be translated by the apostles. And who were incorporated into Christ before I was. There is a sense in which all the human race is in Christ. But there is a point when each person is incorporated in Christ. At the same point when faith is evoked by the gospel. And faith will be evoked in everyone one day because every knee will bow and every tongue will acknowledge allegiance, faithfulness, faithful allegiance to Jesus Christ. So two questions. Is Junia or Junius a man or a woman? Two, are they outstanding among the apostles? Or are they considered to be outstanding by the apostles? In other words, are they apostles? Or are they just considered to be outstanding by the apostles? And if it's the apostles, who does he mean? The 12? Paul doesn't always speak of the 12 in glowing terms. In fact, one time he says, I I agree, I'm not worthy to be called an apostle, but on the other hand, I work harder than all of them put together, not because of my own energy, but because of the grace of God that was given to me. And he wasn't the 12th, most likely. So, here's the thing about apostles. Apostles, apostoloi has a specific sense in the scriptures, a specific sense, most, I think, most notably demonstrated in Revelation 21, 14, where the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb, these are the specific ones that Jesus called. The 12 apostles of the Lamb are to be inscribed in the 12 foundation layers of the New Jerusalem. You say, what about Judas Iscariot? I say, what about him? I'm not going to deal with that tonight. But why wouldn't a forgiven man be, never mind, I don't want to go there. I've already gone there once, the Iscariot papers years ago, and man, did that start a firestorm. So, let's just say, specifically, the 12 apostles of the Lamb are to be inscribed, and that's metaphorically speaking, in the 12 foundation layers of the New Jerusalem. And also, where Jesus declares that in the regeneration, palan, palan genesia, which Pastor Brown rightly translated in his message, the again Genesis, the universal regeneration of all things, he said to his disciples, you will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel in the palan genesia. So there's something specific about these 12. They will sit on 12 thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What that means in its extraordinary metaphorical sense, we are not going to deal with now, but I'm just trying to show you that there is a distinctiveness about these 12. However, the prominence of the 12 apostles of Jesus does not preclude others from being apostles. 
even prominent ones, even outstanding ones. And if Junia is a woman, and if she is married to Andronicus, then we got to end it, and it is referring to outstanding among the apostles, then we got a female apostle we got to deal with there. Ooh. Female apostle. Hmm. I think of Valeria Ramelli and Fleming Rutledge as being their writings far greater than many, most of, if not all of the males I've read in the past 25 years. They've gone way beyond it, and I think maybe they're outstanding among the theologians. Same with Beverly Gaventa, a book I read too by her when I was away. But again, I'm not saying, I'm, I can't conclusively say. That would be beyond my, as they say, pay grade, beyond my competence. So the prominence of the 12 apostles does not preclude others from being apostles, even prominent ones. Paul himself, in fact, distinguished from the 12, not of the 12, considering himself not worthy to be called an apostle, 1 Corinthians 15, 9, nevertheless worked harder and was therefore more effective than all the rest of them by the grace, grace, grace that was given to him. To me was given grace, he says. And apostleship. The grace he had in his apostleship caused him to work harder than Peter, harder than Thaddeus, harder than Nathaniel, harder than Bartholomew, harder than all the other 12. And to greater effect. Harder than Thomas. So if here's the point. If one were to object strenuously that Andronicus and Junia are among the apostles or classed as outstanding among the apostles on the grounds that an apostle must have seen the risen Lord. And that's true. They must have seen the risen Lord in 1 Corinthians 9. 1. Have I not? Am I not an apostle? Paul said, am I not an apostle? Didn't I see the Lord? Of course I did. Rhetorical questions. Yes, I am an apostle. Yes, I did see the Lord. And seeing the Lord, they have to receive a commission from the risen Christ to be an apostle. If we want to go that way, and I think we should. So someone would say, yeah, but they didn't see the risen Lord. How do you know? We ought to consider that the risen Christ was not only seen by the beloved disciple, who wasn't of the twelve, by the twelve and by James and Paul, But so did Mary of Magdala. So did Mary, the mother of Jesus. And so did many other women and men. Many other disciples, including the disciple whom Jesus loved, of John's gospel fame. Now, here's another one. One must consider that over 500 people saw the risen Christ on one occasion. It's found in 1 Corinthians 15. It's one that we don't think about too often. 500 people saw him. And it seems to be they saw him all at once. Were they selected to be the 500 that were there, just like Gideon had 300 that he selected? Were were they just by chance stumble into this event? Hey, there's a guy speaking over there. Let's listen. Oh, it's Jesus. He's risen from the dead. It's God in the flesh. No. They were gathered. 
So one must consider that over 500 people saw him on one occasion. That was an event of which we know very little, but we know it happened. And Paul tantalizes us with it. It drives me crazy. He goes on to say, some of them, some have died since then. They're asleep in the Lord. Others remain still with us. I know it's speculation, but I'm going somewhere with it. And it's okay to speculate if you call it speculation. If you speculate and say, this is the dogmatic truth, you got a problem. So who knows whom and how many, if any of those 500, some of whom were still alive in the 50s when Paul wrote First and Second Corinthians and Romans, who knows out of those 500 who was given by Jesus an apostolic commission? Who knows? So added to the likelihood of their apostleship is that they had been fellow prisoners of Paul. Maybe even cellmates or cellies as they're called. Prison and martyrdom was the special province, it seems, for apostles. Although others. But a special province of apostles. And Paul dramatically discloses this in two passages I want to read. I'm going to read 1 Corinthians 4, 9 to 13 first. My translation. Then I'm going to read a passage in 2 Corinthians 4, 10 through 12, which is almost eerily like Paul directly continued the 1 Corinthians 4 passage in 2 Corinthians 4 and gives us the best bird's eye view concretely of what it means to be an apostle of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 4, I'm going to read it without the mentioning the numbers of the verses starting at verse 11. Paul says, it seems to me that God has exhibited us apostles to be in the last, in last place, as those condemned to die in the gladiatorial arena. We have become a spectacular attraction, he says, to the world, to angels and men. For the Messiah's sake, we are fools. But you are the wise ones in Christ, he says to the Corinthians. We are weak and unimpressive. But you are mighty. You are distinguished. We are despised. Right up to this very hour, right why Paul dictates this epistle or even writes it, we hunger and thirst. We're poorly dressed. No $5,000 suits of television evangelists worn by Paul and the apostles. Poorly dressed, roughly treated, and homeless. This didn't mean that they sat on street corners and begged. Paul worked. He says it next. We work hard with our own hands. So it means he had no, no place to to permanently live. Jesus said the same way. Foxes have holes. 
Birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. This is an identification with Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, when we are verbally abused, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. While slandered, we continue to comfort. We're like the world's garbage, trash. We're like the world's trash. Like the filth washed off of all things in the world. That's an apostle. Those are the apostles. Sounds like they're identifying with someone who wasn't considered to be worthy to live among us. They should die the most ignominious, heinous kind of death. Not with a loincloth, but totally naked on a cross. As if in direct continuation of these words, we have these phenomenal. These are probably the words that are closest to my heart in all the scriptures as far as the ministry goes. Not because I've attained this at all, but because what a goal to attain. It's as if he continued that very set of words in verse 10 of 2 Corinthians 4. We always carry around in our bodies the death of Jesus in order that the life of Jesus may be made known in our body. For we who are living are continually handed over to death for the sake of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus would also be manifested in our mortal flesh. You see, death is at work in us. But life in you. But life in you. That's got to work in somebody for life to work. So in closing, giving these words and given the high commendation that Paul already showed for Miriam and for Phoebe, it cannot be conclusively denied that Andronicus and Junia are not a husband and wife apostolic team. You cannot deny it conclusively. Nevertheless, a definitive conclusion the other way remains in obscurity for now. But I think this is the kind of thing we think about with the scriptures, and it's very profitable for us. Because in any case, by the words that Paul wrote in both 1 Corinthians 4 and 2 Corinthians 4, we may have a little better grasp on just what it means when Paul says that he's not only a slave of Jesus Christ, but also an apostle. Romans 1.1. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. May it prove to be, in fact, something memorable in all of our hearts. May the words that we've entertained tonight from the word of truth be impressed upon us so that they are not forgotten. And may the image of the face of Jesus Christ upon which 
is the light of the knowledge of the glory of God. May that shine into our hearts in order to shine out from them in a manifestation of the life of Jesus in our mortal bodies. I ask this and nothing less. I ask this and nothing more.